Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, September the 9th, 2022. The death of the Queen of England is not the Trump circus uh, off the headlines for a few minutes. Um, one of the interesting things about comparing the news about the death of the Queen and the Trump story is that we know she died. No doubts about that. No doubts about the succession. Her son, Charles, Charles III, is going to take over. Whereas the murkiness of the Trump narrative continues, if you look at the headlines just beneath the Stories about the Queen, the Justice Department now has asked the judge to lift a block on Trump documents. Uh, meanwhile, there's, uh, from the Washington Post, uh, there's an investigation of a low-profile judge uh, is inviting scrutiny. The judge is supposed to oversee this uh, investigation of Mar-a-Lago. Everything in America, of course, is conspiracy, particularly associated with Trump. And if there's a daddy of conspiracy theories associated with the Trump age, it's the murder of Seth Rich, a 27-year-old uh, employee of the Democratic uh, National Committee. That story has now been turned into a book by my guest, Andy Kroll, A Death on W Street. Uh, Andy is joining us from Washington, D.C., the heart of conspiracy theory territory. Uh, Andy, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, don't you long for certainties, Andy, like the death of the Queen? <laughs> the one thing that we can all believe anymore. I mean, the Queen, I feel like part of her lasting power, her cultural, her unmatchable cultural cachet is that she's one of those last things that everyone can agree on, regardless of your political views or your slant on the world. And now we don't have her anymore. So further, we plunge down the rabbit hole. That's why I think we're so nostalgic, even if we're not monarchists for the queen. Um, let's leave the queen for the moment, Andy. Tell me about this death of Seth Rich, this murder and the the conspiracy theory the tragic narrative that sort of arose around this tragedy i call this book a true crime story for the post-truth era what i mean by that is it's a story with two crimes in it there is the tragic murder of a democratic national committee staffer named seth rich that happened in the summer of 2016. And then there is the crime, if you can call it that, of everything that happened after Seth Rich was killed. And by that, I mean this incredible series of events whereby this private tragedy, the death of a young, idealistic, ambitious young man, is transformed into a viral meme a trending hashtag, a rallying cry for the alt-right and for supporters of former President Trump, and ultimately the life and death of Seth, Seth Rich, 
become one of the foundational conspiracy theories of 21st century American politics. So that's what I mean when I say a, a true crime story for the post-truth era. And what I investigate for the book and what I chronicle throughout the book's pages is how on earth did this incredible, unbelievable sequence of events happen? What was happening in American politics at the time that this murder took place that would lead to such an extraordinary, bizarre sequence of events? And what do you do if you are the parents of Seth Rich or the brother of Seth Rich? And you see this set of phenomena happen about someone that you knew and you loved and you know is not uh, a, a whistleblower or was not killed in a political hit job, as some have suspected. What do you do to try to restore Seth's name? What do you do to try to correct the record and, and go to battle for truth? So these are the broad themes, the, the, the big arc that I tell in this book, A Death on W Street. Andy, this is not the first or sadly the last story of this type. 2016 now seems like ancient history. It was six years ago. It's not that long in pre-internet times, but in the internet age, six years could be a century. Remind us of, of, of what happened and the kind of conspiracies that were being uh, uh, the kind of conspiracies that were being invented, particularly on the right. I completely agree with you that 2016 feels like eons ago. And it was interesting writing this book that uh, as I was reporting and recreating you know, that really tumultuous year and almost just really a tumultuous, even just six months from June of 2016 till, till the end of that year. Um, it both felt, you know, I felt a sense of PTSD in some ways, but also it did feel like history that we'll be talking about for decades into the future. A couple of key points that people should remember if they don't. You have a really contentious battle between an establishment candidate, Hillary Clinton, and a more to the left insurgent candidate in Bernie Sanders competing for the Democratic nomination to run for president that year. This is a really pitched battle between, you know, the more sort of corporate centrist establishment supporters of Hillary Clinton and a sort of a younger feistier uh, further to the left contingent for Sanders really, you know, and both sides are battling each other all the way. And eventually Hillary Clinton prevails, but not without some animosity from the Sanders supporters who feel like the Democratic Party was shafting their candidate and helping Clinton. So you have that tension. And then around June Which isn't or so, that unusual. No, Andy. no. I mean, that, that has happened several times in my lifetime in the Democratic Party. No, it, that, that's absolutely right. This is not uncommon for presidential campaigns. It's not uncommon for national politics. I think what you saw on social media, especially places like Twitter and Reddit, was that the 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 anger among the losing candidate supporters tipped from, you know, we're upset that he lost or we think that the party could have done more into 
there are conspiracies happening here to change the outcomes of caucuses or primaries. It took on much more of a conspiratorial bent than I think in years past because these conversations were happening so fast and so often in online communities. So you have that Sanders-Clinton tension, and that's tipping into the conspiratorial. And then in the middle of all this, uh, obviously Donald Trump has become the Republican nominee, someone who had appeared on Alex Jones's InfoWars show the previous fall, which by itself was a pretty incredible moment, uh, uh, an, an unprecedented moment. But Trump says on that show that, you know, Alex Jones is fantastic and his supporters are great. And Jones says, well, yeah, all my supporters are behind you. And there's this big bro hug that happens between the man who would go on to become the Republican nominee and maybe the most well-known popular conspiracy theorist of the 20, again, the 21st century. So there's that element. And then to make things even more complicated, you have a foreign country hack into one of these parties, the Democratic Party, steal a bunch of materials, and then disseminate them to try to stir some chaos into this whole movie. And he has all the makings of a movie. And surprise, surprise, <laughs> I hear that uh, they might be making the book into a movie. So uh, I, I'm uh, I'm rooted already. So continue. Yeah, yes, and that's I'm, right. Uh, you've, you've hooked me. Yeah. And, and, and so in the middle of this, now I'm going to add even more drama to this. In the middle of all of this, this, this incredibly combustible political moment, Donald Trump is the Republican nominee. Who could have expected that? And he's, you know, stoking the conspiratorial fires every chance he gets. The Democrats are divided. And one faction is pretty bitter about how that contest turned out. And Seth Rich is murdered right in the middle of all of this, right on the eve of the Democratic right. National Tell me a little bit about this guy. He's a 27-year-old uh, DNC staffer, looks like a very nice fellow. You knew him, right? You met him at least. Yeah, yeah. We were not friends. We were not close. But I had uh, uh, met him, crossed paths with him. Specifically, we had a lot of friends in common. In... So he was just a guy, another guy in D.C., uh, someone who had come to D.C. to work on, on the campaign. Yeah, and people people like that are, are everywhere here in D.C. That's what D.C. Capitol is, Hill. right? Yeah. So coming in is. and out. Yeah, exactly. You walk around Capitol Hill and there's, you know, packs of young people with lanyards and they're the first suit they ever owned in their entire life walking between office buildings and Capitol Hill and the, you know, the, the U.S. Congress hoping to play some small part in the bigger story of American politics. And Seth was one of those people. He wanted to as earnest as it sounds, make a difference through politics. And that's what he was doing and hoping to continue doing when he was tragically killed in July of 2016. And this was at 4 a.m. in the morning in D.C. So these kind of, I mean, D.C. has a pretty bad record when it comes to murders, doesn't it? It certainly has in the last couple of years as a lot of big... I mean, how unusual was the murder of a... Uh, a young white staffer in at 4 a.m. in the streets of Washington, D.C. It didn't it, it did not fit the normal profile of a, a homicide, but it also fit the profile of a lot of crimes that had been happening in his neighborhood 
at that time in 2016. What was the neighborhood in D.C.? Yeah, yeah. It's a neighborhood in Northwest called Bloomingdale. It had been plagued by armed robberies all summer long in 2016. Armed robberies that, when I went back and pulled the reports for them, were eerily similar. People who were walking, talking on their phones, looking at their phones, who were, you know, stuck up at at gunpoint and were told to basically, you know, wipe off the tracking app on their phone, hand over their phone, their wallet, you know, any other valuables. And then these two are robbers. Was there um, any struggle? Was he shot? Stabbed? He was, yes. He was shot several times and his wristband was ripped, which the police have said seemed to indicate a struggle. And, you know, the theory, as I report in the book, is that you know, he was walking home really late, talking on the phone, drunk, because he had been at a bar for much of the night, as one does on a Saturday night. And that when he was approached and this robbery was attempted, he likely resisted and, and, and tried to fight back and was shot. And then the people who committed this crime aren't going to stick around and try to you know, pick through your pockets or unhit, you know, unlatch your watch. Once the gun goes off, they, you, they flee. You know, perpetrators flee. This is what and I. With his uh, wallet yeah. stolen, did he have stuff stolen? No, he didn't have anything stolen from him. Again, his, his, his the wristband on his watch was, was torn either in the struggle or an attempt to get it off. But there was nothing taken from him, which would, to police, make all the sense in the world because once the gun goes off, you don't stick around to rob someone, but to people online who say, huh, that doesn't like if it's attempted armed robbery, why wasn't anything taken? That detail was one of several details that would be. Okay. So, so we have this, I mean, obviously for, for, for the rich family, horrible tragedy, unimaginable tragedy. And for everybody else, just another murder on the Washington, D.C. streets, a death on W Street. And then what happens? Who picks it up first? Yeah, this is an interesting thing I learned because the rich conspiracy theory is really strongly associated with the right, with Fox News, with the MAGA movement. But the initial flickers happen on the far left, the opposite end of the spectrum with supporters of Senator Sanders and supporters of the Green Party candidate, uh, Jill Stein at the time, who, getting back to what I said a little bit earlier, were already primed to believe that something nefarious had happened to deny Sanders the nomination. And now they see this young man who's killed worked for the DNC, and without any evidence, a leap is made on the far left. Well, oh, he must have tried to blow the whistle, or he must have tried to expose the Clintons. He must have known something. And he was killed for knowing that and trying to speak out. And then the right pick it up. I mean, we've done so many shows on conspiracy theories of one kind. I did one with Carl Hoffman, the author of Liar's Circus, who spent some time on the Trump campaign in 2016. Um, He argued that conspiracy theories run deep through Trump's base. And he's not the first or last person to notice that. What's your interpretation? What's your explanation, Andy, of why conspiracy theory is at the heart of Trump and Trumpism? I mean, you can look all the way back to Donald Trump's 
first foray into public life in the, the 70s and 80s where, you know, he accused the federal government of some kind of plot against the family company after the federal government found that the, the company had been discriminating against black would-be tenants. I mean, Donald Trump has been, you know, I think he is wired this way, either in, in, in deploys conspiracy theories, either intentionally or naturally, that this is just something that's baked into him. Yeah, but with Trump, and, I mean, it seems as if a lot of it is designed to promote himself or defend his own companies. What is it within the movement, the base, that makes these people so vulnerable, if that's the right word, to conspiracy theory? A couple of things. One is a leader of their movement who is so overwhelmingly conspiratorial and who will turn any criticism of him or bad news into uh, a baseless claim about, you know, vague enemies out to get him. So that's one. And then I also think that there is a, a larger set of things happening in American politics, these kind of tectonic movements underneath our feet that have caused Americans, both in the MAGA movement and elsewhere, but especially there, to become distrustful of media, distrustful of politics, distrustful of courts, distrustful of any institution that they feel like is in some way against Is there a religious component? Them. Is there any coincidence that a lot of mm. the, the people within the Trump conspiracy base are also born-again Christians? Does it naturally go together, a belief in conspiracy and some sort of redemptive Christian faith? Yeah, it's a great question because there's a long history of evangelical leaders in America, both preaching you know, religious messages, but also sowing you know, claims or doubts about, you know, vague, nefarious forces, you know, some proto deep state or cabal of elites that are running the world behind the scenes. I mean, you can go back to Pat Robertson, you can go back to all kinds of those sort of pre-internet era religious leaders. I mean, the Bible is a conspiracy. I mean, the Bible is a book built around conspiracy theory, isn't it? Oh, I don't, I'm not as enough of an expert to weigh in on the the conspiratorial DNA of the Bible, but well, there is the Bible overlap. presents some sort of deity as the 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 original or the the ultimate conspirator. But anyway, so back back to the the the, the rich story. So the right pick it up, and then what? Yeah, the, it's interesting. It jumps from left to right, and it does that in the form of an interview given by Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks who's, published uh, who's simultaneously on the left and the right. I mean, he's yeah, born both facts. Yeah, which made him the perfect super spreader for yeah. this uh, <laughs> conspiracy theory, given that he had that crossover credibility, you might say. He sort of subtly insinuates that Seth, who is dead at this point and cannot defend himself, had something to do with all of those stolen DNC emails getting published by WikiLeaks that is the super spreader event that turns this from a sort of fringy left but fairly small phenomenon into a full-blown viral conspiracy theory, but now on the right end of the political spectrum. In historical terms, as I said, and you acknowledge this, I mean, this is certainly not the first or the last great conspiracy theory. 
what's its legacy? So what? The legacy of this conspiracy theory is that I both believe it captures the, the kind of modern conspiracy theory industrial complex. I mean, I say that 2015, 2016 were the sort of golden age for conspiracy theories because you had all of these social media platforms that were both more powerful than they'd ever been, but also had so few, if any, restrictions on what you could say. This was still right. the time when Facebook was claiming we're not an arbiter of right and wrong, truth and fiction. This was the we're Cambridge Analytical time. Right, right. We're just a platform. Say what you want. There's a reason Alex Jones had more subscribers on YouTube than the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal combined, because YouTube was a wild west. All of them were. Seth Rich is the is the the I think the first story that truly captures this moment of conspiracy theories flourishing in a way that they never had before, but that they would subsequently in years to come. But this one was the, the first. This was the Did it make any fail. political difference, the rich conspiracy theory? Did it did it have an impact on the election? I can't put like a particular number of polling points or votes in Michigan or Wisconsin or whatever. But what I will tell you is, and as I report in the book, is it became, it meaning this conspiracy theory about Seth, became a galvanizing force for supporters of President, future President Trump, then candidate Trump. It, it was a, a, not just a talking point, but an, an organizing nexus, especially for people online you know, I, I, I capture the scene in the book where on the the Reddit forum devoted to Trump supporters are the Donald, as it was known on election night. All of the you know, these hundreds of thousands of, of Trump fans are watching the election results come in. And as they start turning toward Donald Trump and eventually leading to Donald Trump's victory, these supporters of President Trump are thanking Seth Rich. They are saying we couldn't have done this without him. Again, claiming that he was some leaker of DNC emails, which he wasn't. They're saying, stop for a moment and remember Seth Rich. He's looking down on heaven. He's looking down from heaven on us now. We have to thank him. So clearly people were motivated by this baseless theory and motivated to help Donald Trump, perhaps more than they would have if this theory didn't exist. So were you coming up with your own, I wouldn't say conspiracy theory, Andy, but the idea that Trump wouldn't have been elected without the, the, the rich conspiracy theory? I wouldn't go that far. I, I, I wouldn't put my political prognosticating skills quite to the test like that. But I do think that the story of 2016 would be pretty significantly different if this series of events that I lay out. Why? What would happened. have been different? Pretty significantly different, meaning either Trump, well, the only really pr pretty different would have, outcome would have been if Trump would have lost. Otherwise, it's just another noisy conspiracy mania. And if it's not this one, then there's something else. It's Russia, it's this, it's that. True. It's Hunter True. Biden. I mean, Hunter Biden hasn't even, I mean, not that he was so central in 2016, uh, but yesterday the, the Biden the Hunter Biden film launch. So, 
I don't know how much has really even changed over the last six years. No, it's in some ways it feels like 2016 has never ended and we're just reliving versions of that. It's the nightmare. It's the Hollywood movie <laughs> and it's sequels and sequels and pre-sequels. Right, and they go right, right. Every, everything's happening in the, 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 the election 2016 cinematic universe, just like every movie now is the stupid Marvel cinematic and, universe. And, and to what extent is this just the reality? I did a, a show with... Um, uh, I did a, a show with uh, Jonathan Carl, the ABC uh, White House correspondent. He had a book out front row at the... Uh, uh, front row at the uh, Trump show. I mean, to what extent is this just a reality now of American politics? There's going to be crazy fringe people. There always have been. But because of the internet, they have more viral power. Do we just mm -hmm. have to get used to it? I think we have to get used to it to a certain degree. This is American politics in the age of social media, in the age when anyone can claim that they're a journalist or that they're their own TV station, when, you know, the, 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 the I mean, the internet is, I think as Walter Kern put it in, uh, in a Harper's essay at one point, you know, the internet wants people to participate. It doesn't want you to sit back and watch it wants you to join. And I think that this has reoriented our politics in a, in a substantive way, but I would also say that it doesn't necessarily have to be, exactly like this in terms of how social media shapes our politics because these platforms can change they can be changed their algorithms can be changed to not prioritize extreme inflammatory bombastic content in the way that they do now and maybe that's a policy change yeah we had john roush on the show i'm sure you're familiar with of his course. work um the constitution of knowledge, a defense of truth. He believes that the internet can be redesigned to be friendlier to the truth. What measures would you like to see? What did you learn from researching and writing a death on W Street in terms of redesigning the internet to be friendlier to the truth? Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I realized is that behind all of these massively powerful and hugely popular social media platforms are people. And people are making decisions about how these platforms that are so central to our lives work. And those people can make different decisions. And thus, the design of the platforms can change and probably should change if what we've lived through. From uh, I take your point. Give me, today, give me some yeah. concrete examples of how, Andy. I mean, oh, I mean the people have been uh, the, the, the people on Reddit who had been spreading this conspiracy theory, should have they have been liable under the law? Should the, the people who run Reddit, should they be sued? I mean, what exactly needs to happen? Yeah, that's the Section 230 debate. And that one... Where do you stand on 230? Yeah, I, I have problems with it. I, I think that it... The, 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 at least from all the research and all the commentary and the, and the, the, re, the reading that I've done, I think it creates more problems eliminating 230 than it does. That that position could change, and right. perhaps we don't really ever know what the world after 230 would be like until we got there. But that, to me, seems like a, a lawyer's paradise where they can just sue every one of these platforms for every single thing there if the platforms are liable for it. But, you know, I, I think there are things we can do, again, on the algorithmic design of these platforms to de-emphasize, you know, to, to basically make it that the loudest voice 
carries the day. That is what happened with the Seth Rich story. It wasn't that's about what, what Trump was true. is. I mean, he's just a very it loud is. It is. Voice. And it that's is. not just because of the internet. It seems to be some sort of physical realities there. One of the things that's happened since Rich, of course, is 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 COVID. Uh, William Bernstein, who wrote a, a new book, The Delusion of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups, mm -hmm. argues that conspiracy, the conspiracy, what he calls a conspiracy virus, is as dangerous as COVID. Do you think COVID, in terms of the way in which epidemic spread, has taught us anything about conspiracy theories and how to confront them? Especially since there were conspiracy theories knitted into COVID. Right. Right. We're sort of talking on two levels here, both right. conspiracy theories about COVID and COVID t teaching us about them. Yeah, I mean, it has definitely taught me and I, you know, I, I, as I mentioned a bit earlier, I kind of borrow a little bit of that language, the super spreader language um, to to try to explain how the Seth Rich theory came to be. You know, the um, this I just this didn't get into the book ultimately a lot because it felt a little bit apart. But I interviewed a couple of experts on human psychology and how we process information, including one guy, um, really interesting uh, professor named Sander Vanderlinden, who is a believer in um, pre-bunking or ways to inoculate people against yeah. false information, conspiracy theories. There's a lot of good research happening there. It seems to be pointing in the direction that pre-bunk slash inoculation could have some effect. Could so be we need some shots. We do. Yeah, shots straight through the eyes into the brain. But yeah, they, they, there seems to be some evidence coming out now that suggests this could be a useful tool uh, in the in the fight. To is it possible that all this is itself uh, like a virus that will go away? We did a show recently on QAnon with the journalist Mike Rothschild. He has a new book out, The Storm Is Upon Us. I have to admit, that I, I was very unconvinced by Rothschild and by the threat of QAnon. Is it possible that the storm is not upon us, but the storm is finished now? Hmm. That it's simply gone away, that we've lived through it like we lived through McCarthyism? I do think it ebbs and flows, these, these more kind of, uh, you know, nationwide moments of, kind of conspiratorial fit of madness, if you will. You know, QAnon had, I feel like, a big moment. And it does feel as if either QAnon is receding or it's being absorbed into something else, whether it's sort of election denial or some other, you know, Mike Flynn-style Christian nationalism, digital soldier future so I do think that that, you know, like a fever, it comes and it breaks. But the underlying human propensity, inclination, if you will, to believe these things, I don't think ever goes away. We all to, to what extent do you think progressives like yourself and for that matter, myself, we have to be careful about using these sort of conspiracies to simply build our own conspiracies. You've done the rounds with the book. You were on Stephanopoulos. You were on, uh, you were, you were on uh, Morning Joe. You've been on Axios. Um, the progressive yep. media eats this kind of stuff up. To what extent do we all need to leave this kind of thing behind? I'm not suggesting that a death on W Street 
wasn't worth writing. It's an important story symbolically, and it's a real story about a horrible tragedy for uh, a family. But to what at what point do we on the left need to simply forget about Trump and all his mad theories? Um, I, well, I would just say for the record, I, I you know, would consider myself have a little bit of a libertarian streak as well. Um, and don't put any of this into my own work as much as I humanly can. That's just how I do my job in terms of me as a, you know, my, my, my ideological leanings in my work. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you have to be, you have to really believe that the reporting that you do, the writing that you publish on these subjects needs to, needs to exist in the world. And I really think it, it, it needs to capture something larger about what's going on in American politics or even American life writ large. I mean, I, I believe, and I wrote a book about this for this very reason, that the Seth Rich story just catches so much about how our country has But it conforms to what everyone thinks. So we've got the pro-MAGA cop, we've got Fox News. And I mean, some of these people are probably guilty, but it simply confirms what we already think. And in a way, it's like watching MSNBC. Oh, no, I don't think so. I think there's lots of stuff in here that people would find that uh, does not conform and I've heard from people that that, that doesn't, you know, what like re- reinforce their Give I mean, me that an example is... of something that will really jar on the left with this story of death on W Street, apart from the fact that it began on the left. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, that's a great example right there that a lot of people that I've talked to on the left had no clue that that was the case and at first didn't buy it. And then, you know, realized that, yeah, this is a this is a bipartisan uh, uh phenomenon. This is not exclusive to Fox News or the MAGA movement or whatever. I also think that, you know, the depiction of Julian Assange in this book unsettles a lot of people because he's seen uh, really in a black and white kind of sense. He's a martyr on the cause of of free speech and journalism, or he is, as Mike Pompeo put it, a, you know, the head of a hostile foreign intelligence agency. And the Julian Assange in the book, I don't think yeah, is any of those things. He is much more complicated uh, and also is played a critical role in this story. And I wonder if, you know, yeah, if, if Assange ever ends up in a U.S. court, whether we'll hear more on the um, on the rich case. Finally, um, uh, finally, Andy, you you're now with ProPublica. You were with the Rolling Stone. Um, what's the challenge for journalists reporting on this stuff? I know you're you're honest. You're telling people where you are in Washington, D.C. Often when I interview people who have written controversial books like you, they won't even reveal where they live. Hmm. They're so scared. Did you get any personal threats on this? Are you uh, are you what what advice would you give younger journalists, perhaps less experienced journalists about telling the truth about conspiracy theories, especially since so many of the, the people involved in these conspiracy theories have a propensity, if not to violence, certainly to the threat of violence. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you have to exhibit a degree of fearlessness and you have to develop a thick skin writing about these subjects because people will threaten you. People will say nasty things about you online or in emails to their cohort, their associates, 
what have you, that absolutely comes with the territory. And I'm used to it at this point, certainly happened in the course of doing this book. But I think at the end of the day, there's still no, there's still no way to claim that you've been wronged or that you, that you have uh, your own set of facts, your own grip on reality than the facts themselves. And this book is built brick by brick with facts. And I don't go any farther than I can anywhere in the book that I could prove through my reporting. And that, I think, is the ultimate answer and rebuttal to the conspiracy theorists and the online trolls and anyone who would challenge a book like this. Couldn't agree more. A death on W Street, the murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy is just out by uh, Andy Kroll. It's an essential read, both in terms of the case itself and understanding the mania of conspiracy, both on the left, but particularly the right of American politics. Congratulations, Andy, on the book. Brave, honest reporting. We need guys like you. Uh, what else have you been reading recently that you would recommend? What do you like to read? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I veer between fiction, nonfiction, memoir, you name it. I think um, Rachel Aviv's new book, Stranger to Ourselves, uh, is really fantastic. It comes out, I think, on Tuesday. I stack an early copy. So I would certainly recommend that to readers. Um, and actually, you know, I, I, I've, I've gone back and I'm reading, rereading Donna Tartt's The Secret History I, you know, remember reading it years ago, but I think I would and, and am appreciating it. Someone just wrote a big that. piece about Todd, about explaining why that book has such a cult following. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I maybe I read that piece or I have enough. You friends didn't write the piece. I didn't know. No, no, no. I read it. I think, you know, there's is everywhere. Book. Probably there's some yeah. spiritual element in the top. <laughs> Fitting with the Tart book, given all the things that happened in it. So, uh, but it's good. And it's a good balance, these two, nonfiction and fiction. So I'd put those out there for your for your audience as well. 